Hey folks, Gary and Adam here from Experience by Design. We have a few copies of Radica Dutt's new book, Radical Product Thinking, to give away. So if you'd like a copy, shoot us an email over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com and let us know. You'll have a chance to win. We will be emailing the winners in January 22. So we'd love to hear from you. Reach on out. Hi, I'm Adam Gamwell. And I'm Gary David. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. We're on the verge of a new year, and with a new year comes new ideas about how we need to make changes in our lives. While individuals will often make New Year's resolutions, how about making a New Year's resolution for your organization? What resolutions can organizations make that change the way they have been doing things and enter the new year with not only the best intentions, but also the best outcomes? To help us explore this and how to make these radical changes in our individual and organizational lives, we have in the Experience by Design Studios, Radhika Dutt. Radhika is the author of a new book called Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. The book is about much more than just products, though. It's about thinking and acting radically. Now, Radica advises organizations from high-tech startups to governmental agencies on building radical products that create a fundamental change. Based on her years of experience living around the world, speaking nine languages and working on a tenth, being an entrepreneur and working as a consultant, Radica has seen what change looks like upfront and impersonal. She's an entrepreneur and a product leader who has participated in four acquisitions, two of which were companies that she founded. That is right. That is a radical That's amount a lot. Of, of experience. That's a lot. <laughs> um, so what's cool is that in, in her book, she distills this wealth of knowledge into these very clear elements that anyone, any individual or organization can use. And so in today's conversation, we're going to break down what radical product thinking is and what it can do. And you see, it's a skill for creating change in the world around you. And one of the most interesting aspects is that it can work for organizations, but also for you as an individual, but even entities that we don't even traditionally think about as products, such as Singapore, which is something that kind of blew my mind when we first right. read the book. And then we'll talk about this in the episode as well. One of the key elements of radical product thinking that we discuss is building out a vision versus iterative product thinking. And what this means is that we create guidelines and rails, guardrails that'll help foster growth in this desired directions measure what matters, and also create lasting change. So much of design thinking and product design, if you're familiar with these fields, uh, has traditionally been about iteration and agile frameworks. Right. And radical product thinking incorporates, but moves beyond uh, and moves into a deeper level than just this iterative thinking to focus on the idea of vision. And so creating and evaluating and building on one's vision is the antidote she shares with us to short-term and iterative thinking. So we are super excited to share this conversation with you. So let's get to it. All right. Um, so, yeah, Radhika, we're 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 both very excited to talk with you today because there is, I think, such a wealth of insight in in ways of thinking about uh, how we can. You know, use business for good and, and kind of rethink. Um, you know, I don't know products as this framework. I think that was one of the most like fundamentally interesting pieces of. Let's just rethink. Oftentimes, we think product. I think like an object that we're making, right? Like a piece of hardware, a piece of software. But you are, I mean, radically altering that. So I guess just to kind of kick us off, like help us think about this idea. Like, what is a radical? What's a radical product? How do we wrap our head around this idea? Yeah, to me, a radical product is one where we're creating change in the world. Uh, and it really means that the way we think about products is outdated because exactly as you said, it's not just a hardware or a software or, you know, a physical or digital thing. Instead, you know, when you think about a radical product as something that creates change in the world, then your product is your mechanism to create that change. And that, to me, was really an aha moment when I realized that in my career. Because when you think about this way, it means anything can be your product. 
And it gives us this whole vocabulary for, well, how do I build this product very systematically? You know, my background is that I studied engineering, right? And this is what I like. I like this structured way of how can I do this in a replicable way? Uh, and so realizing that how we create change in the world can be done very systematically, um, that was what led to this sort of a framework where you know, instead of let's just try it and see what works and this kind of iteration-led mindset that we have today that's predominant, this gives us a really refreshing alternative. Mm. One, of, yeah. one of the interesting things about that is that we have a uh, people-oriented engineer on the podcast. <laughs> and I don't know if that's, if that's insulting or if I've, I've, I've ostracized, you know, some of the audience, but the fact that, you know, an engineer, a person with engineering training is actually putting people at the center of decision-making is not something that you often come across. So did, you know, in your own training and education, was this, was this a break you had to make, or is this an epiphany you had, or was this always something, or am I being unfair to the engineering profession? If I am, I apologize from the outset. I think, see, that is the great stereotype of engineers, right? There um, I go. And, and, no, no, but <laughs> I, 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 I feel like I have bought into that stereotype myself. Um, but the, the interesting thing about the stereotype is that because of the stereotype, I never thought of myself as an engineer. I mean, I went to MIT, I studied electrical engineering, and yet because I just don't fit that stereotype, I never thought of myself as an engineer. And I know this uh, now after all these years because I also see other women who studied engineering. Uh, one of my friends, she went into design after studying computer science at MIT. And, you know, both of us, we don't really think of ourselves as engineers because mm. of the stereotype. Hmm. That's that's super interesting. And, and so do you find that are, are, are people resonating with this idea that we actually like are we you know ultimately it's this subtle notion that we have to rethink obviously the one gendered norms that we tend to put in what engineering can be and who who can be an engineer and so um are you are you finding that that basically is I don't know I'm curious like is is kind of rethinking through business and, and products and, and more human-centered versions of, of product thinking is this helping also bust those stereotypes and just saying, hold on, we're actually like, we're getting all of it wrong. We're, we're thinking about engineering being a certain kind of gender. We're thinking about what we do with engineering as a certain way of, of making in the world. Um, I don't know. It, it, it seems interesting too that like this is like the, the radical product approach is actually saying, like, we need to rethink all of this actually. You know, we got to be holistic. I, I love that you bring that up. But what's fascinating is this is the first time that topic of the engineering stereotype has actually come up, you know. Uh, and this is why I love your podcast. We get into all sorts of depth that you typically don't uh, in, in other places. Like, yeah, I love it. That's always good to hear too. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I loved in the book, and I just was looking back through it, and I typed out this quote. Um, society thrives on nuance, but increasingly nuance like attention is scarce. And I, you know, uh, one of the things that I try to do in my classes or whatever it is I do, and I know Adam does the same, is explore those spaces in between. You know, get out of this bifurcation of perspective of this inner group or team dynamics. So much of the discourse in society is us and them, this team or that team, who's ahead, who's winning. And that middle ground gets totally lost. And, and you know, when we were talking with people about this, because we've been so programmed to be unnuanced. That's not a word. We just created it. <laughs> you find that, you know, people have a hard time wrapping their heads around that nuance because of all this digital pollution that you're talking about? Or do you find that people are looking for that opportunity to explore those, you know, the gray area or the gradients that might exist around any topic? I think it, this book really appeals to a certain group of people. Okay. And I think it's kind of people who you target in this podcast, like they're people who think deeply about right. things, right? And I think those people are looking for that sort of nuance in the world. Um, maybe for listeners, we can talk about what digital pollution is mm, first, sure. just by way of background. So, uh, you know, I think over the last couple of decades, what we've increasingly started to see is our products that we put in the world, they create collateral damage in society. Um, and just as the growth in industry led to environmental pollution, uh, 
the carefree growth that we've seen in the digital era has led to what I coined as a phrase, digital pollution. Uh, and in the book, I talk about five types of digital pollution. And the one that you were referring to was this attention hijacking, uh, where, you know, the most important resource is your attention. And so every single product, website, etc., it's all vying for that attention. And which means that because all of them are hijacking your attention, uh, all information that we absorb gets boiled down to just sound bites as opposed to being able to really grasp the nuance because we don't have that bandwidth to be able to grasp nuance anymore. Um, and why is nuance so important in society? Um, you know, in the book, I contrast two examples. I lived in South Africa when uh, the country transitioned from apartheid to democracy. I moved there right after the end of apartheid in 91 um, and uh, was there when we had our first democratic elections in 94. And I look back at that time when we transitioned from apartheid to democracy, the whole world, you know, was waiting with bated breath. Everyone thought that South Africa, South Africa was just going to devolve into a civil war. And there was all sorts of, you know, talk from both factions where that was a real danger. But what prevented that was Nelson Mandela and F.W. de Klerk had a nuanced vision for South Africa. You know, they talked about the rainbow nation. uh, And instead of, you know, people uh, talking about vengeance, etc., they convinced people that we have to look back at atrocities and get past them. So there was this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And all of this was such a nuanced message. And in just the last decade as Facebook and Twitter has grown, I've come to this profound realization that this sort of a transition to democracy would have never been possible had we had Twitter and Facebook Mm. in those days, right? And uh, let's contrast this to uh, a time where, you know, it, it was a matter of pride that we don't do nuance. When we went into the Iraq war, Bush famously said, I don't do nuance. Well, right. nuance was exactly <laughs> what we needed at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe South Africa might have survived Instagram. I don't know. It would have been interesting <laughs> to see how that played out if people were just taking pictures of food and um, animals out in the, uh, in the plains. But with uh, you know being old enough now to remember the prelude to the Iraq war, when people were arguing for nuance, for a measured response, for you know, the, the, for directing assets towards the actual problems and not necessarily towards desired, um, you know, goals like displacing, you know, displacing Saddam Hussein, that there really wasn't. I, I do recall, and I you know, apologize for editorializing that I got. It was like, you know, uh, you know, with us or against us, us or them. You're with mm-hmm. the terrorists or with the United States. And for those of us who dealt in nuance, we're like, well, wait a second. Aren't there more options on the test? Can I, you know, can I at least have a few more? Can I pick C versus A or B? Because I was told C is always the right answer. If you don't know the right answer to take, just pick C. And there was none of that. There was no C, yeah. There was no C. It was just A or B. And really, there was just one. Because when you say with us or against us, well, that's a hell of a choice. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like, you know, a lot of how we build products has been with this idea of, you know, we just have to disrupt and disrupting for the sake of it has been seen as, well, a good thing that, uh, in fact, there was this quote that I saw in an HBR article. It was the former CEO of eBay who said, you know, entrepreneurs like to screw up the status quo and say, let's see what happens if we do this. And that statement, you know, profoundly disturbs me. I mean, this attitude is exactly what brings us to where we are today, which is where we have digital pollution uh, and, and, you know, where we disrupt for the sake of it. And we realize that not everything that can be disrupted should be disrupted. Mm. Um, the contrast that, that I draw is, you know, this really different attitude with which we can build products, which is starting with a very clear vision for what is the change that we really want to bring to the world. First, envisioning that change and then setting about bringing about that change through your product and designing that product, engineering it systematically towards bringing that change. And finally, the way you measure success is by saying, well, have I been successful in creating that change? And a product is not justified in itself. It shouldn't exist just because, you know, that's the end goal. Uh, it's, It's only successful if it actually creates that change that we envisioned. 
Yeah, no, and I think that that's both a refreshing and necessary perspective to, to think because you know as we're kind of building off of this this idea of digital pollution, like what what you know it it's I hear you pointing towards too is this notion that oftentimes when we are creating something for the sake of creating it or disrupting for the sake of disruption, that is kind of I think you also talk about this as this, this iterative led approach where it's not there's not a set kind of end goal or the product is the end goal versus thinking more holistically about what is the potential unintended outcomes, which, which I love the concept of digital pollution as a way of articulating some of the unintended consequences that come from doing things digitally at scale, right? That we can change things in this much, much, much broader perspective. But, um, you know, doing this, this they're like kind of bringing in this vision-led perspective. Let's, let's break this down a little bit too, because I think it's, it's a really fascinating way of grounding, you know, where it is that we want to go. And, and again, thinking about a product, not as the end in, in of itself, but as this, again, as you said before, this mechanism for change, which I think is really interesting. Um, and some of the examples I'd love you to talk through too is um, you like the things that got me really thinking was thinking about Singapore as a product, which is right. to me, I was like, what? Like that blew my, my mind when I was thinking about this idea in <laughs> um, South Africa too. And just the idea of like how we build in nuance um, as, as a way of like infusing this kind of vision led thinking. So um, maybe maybe the Singapore example could be fun to think with too, in terms of that idea as a product and, and what vision looks like when it's in action. You know, when, when we're kind of putting it in play to, you know, again let this product be this the mechanism by which we're going to create more positive outcome in the world. Yeah, you know, I love the example of Singapore, particularly because every time I talk about Singapore as this vision-driven product, people say, well, but that only works because, you know, it's such a small country. And I feel like, you know, that's really a bit of a cop-out that we think that it only works because it's a small country. Like, if I look at how the country was engineered and how success was engineered, like, a lot of that was driven by that vision and systematically translated it translating it into reality. So let's look at the history of Singapore and how the country came about, right? Singapore became an independent country in 1965 after a failed merger with Malaysia. Um, both countries realized that, you know, this this merger just was not working. It became an independent country where nobody even thought that it could really survive as a country because Singapore had no natural resources of its own except a port. Even access to drinking water was limited. Uh, They were dependent on Malaysia for 70% of their drinking water. And so any country around them could have gobbled up this island. Uh, Poverty was just rampant, unemployment too. Uh, And so, you know, how did Singapore go from there in the 1960s to this economic powerhouse? Um, It was vision-driven. The first prime minister, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, you know, in this first press conference that he gave, he actually got emotional saying, all my life, uh, I thought Singapore's place in the world was with Malaysia. Like even he didn't think Singapore could survive the country, right? But he had a vision. Uh, And that vision was he wanted to give Singaporeans a better life. um, And his product was Singapore. He actually talked about Singapore like a product. He said he wanted to produce a first world oasis in a third world region. And he talked about it like a product saying, you know, I want to create a platform where businesses can come to explore the Asian region. And so, you know, this vision was great, but a vision alone uh, isn't enough. Like that is that is super important. But the next step was he actually had a strategy for it. Um, so in terms of a strategy, right? Like the in the radical product thinking framework, you ask four questions. The first uh, and the easy to remember mnemonic, by the way, is RDCL or radical. So R is the real pain point. So what do businesses need in such an oasis? What's the pain point that makes them come to this platform? Uh, And in the case of Singapore, the answer was, well, these were businesses in the West. Uh, They needed, one example is they needed English to be the the business language. They needed it to be really easy to communicate. So that was the design, English being the, uh, the business language. But C is for capabilities that talks about, you know, how do we uh, power that design? So let's think about so many countries where you had ethnic diversity and Singapore, they had Tamils, Chinese, Malays. So many countries go into civil war when you pick one language over others. And so in Singapore, it wasn't just a matter of saying, hey, we're going to pick English overnight. Uh, It was this um, very thoughtful approach of engineering change saying, "Okay, we first have to do language education, get people to buy in as to why English is the business language. And so even today, um, all languages are recognized as official mother tongues, including Chinese, Tamil and Malay. 
And English just happens to be the business language. And then the last part of strategy is logistics, which is, you know, how do you actually deliver all of this? And this is where, you know, they have all these different uh, approaches to enforcing these things, uh, even leading by example. The prime minister, when he gives his uh, equivalent of the State of the Union address, he will actually speak in English, uh, Chinese and in Malay, uh, not in Tamil. Uh, but, you know, like all of the strategy was very systematically designed for delivering that vision. Um, and then that led to, you know, what does it mean in terms of priorities? And then finally, you know, how do you measure success? And they're very like metrics driven, but thinking about what metrics actually deliver this change. Um, so it, it was this very systematic approach that I was actually seeing in terms of how I was perceiving the country. And I'm happy yeah, to share okay. an example if, if that's interesting. So, you know, I had just moved to Singapore. This was the morning after. Um, and it was uh, this, this morning where we had to go pick up our work permits at the immigration office, basically. And, you know, as every person who has ever been to an immigration <laughs> office, right. you don't look forward to that task. <laughs> so, um, you know, my kids had been up since 2 a.m. because of jet lag. I was dreading this, right? So we walk into this uh, government office to pick up our pass. This was the Ministry of Manpower. We check in and we're sitting down and waiting. And someone actually comes to us and says, oh, are you being helped? And I was thinking, hang on, am I in the right place? Because, <laughs> you know, people are asking me as if I'm a customer or something. And then, you know, while we had a couple of minutes, I was browsing around the office and uh, there were all these wonderful signs about how, you know, we will we want to give you the best customer service. Uh, we <laughs> want to anticipate your every need. And again, you know, I'm thinking like, where am I? And in a government office, I'm being called the customer. Um, and then we were called um, by name, not by number. Uh, they even, you know, thought about our needs where instead of being required to bring a passport size photograph, wow. they actually took a picture and then showed it to us <laughs> saying, would you like it retaken? <laughs> Exactly. And so all of this experience was designed with a certain vision. It wasn't just for the sake of delivering customer delight, right? It was designed with a vision because Singapore wants to attract the best talent into the country um, for really upskilling and, and delivering, uh, making it easy for businesses to find talent. Um, and so that's why they have this amazing customer experience. But all of this is, is driven by a vision. And in every government office, you see the vision posted. And then you'll see this sort of a customer experience. And then at the end, they actually ask you for feedback saying, you know, what could we improve on? And this is what I mean by, you know, designing a country like a product. I should ask on a scale of zero, zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend this country to your friends and family? <laughs> see what Singapore's net promoter score is. <laughs> Talking about measuring what matters. You know? Right, exactly. <laughs> this place is a-okay. You know, that, that's really interesting too, um, you know, because Gary and I, you know, we, we are often kind of thinking back and forth about these ideas of, you know, oftentimes when, when it comes to things like experience design in an element that you, you know, they say oftentimes like good design is invisible, you know, that you don't see it and like, or you notice it when it doesn't work. And so what's interesting in, in this example that you're sharing here, it sounds like mm -hmm. it's, it's actually the opposite of that too. It's like you're noticing it because it does work. Um, or because it's an anomaly almost that like there actually is a, a sort of an element of um, intentional experience design built in around the, the whole experience, you know, in terms of being actually human centered. And like, and it's it's great too to see that, uh, you know, if as we're like kind of moving in, into like helping people think about what a radical, you know, product design framework is, radical product thinking, it's that we can see that it actually is, it's quite concrete, right? So the idea is like a vision often feels abstract, right? And there's something you note about in the book too that, that's, I think, great to think with as well is that when we're trying to figure out what is my, what's my North Star, it can be very hard or kind of almost intimidating to say, how do I, how do I frame what it is that I'm trying to do? But when, when, we're, when we're looking at this example here, it, it actually is quite concrete and that we have elements literally of posters on the wall in, in like the, the, the sort of version of an NPS, right? The feedback score of how we, how we did, or just you know, making sure that someone feels like they're, they've, been, they've been helped in, in a space. And so I think that that's quite helpful too to, to think about uh, in, in terms of how we frame that. Because I think, I think one of the other pieces that um, I've definitely seen is like when you're talking with organizations or folks that are trying to, to kind of 
think about what is our vision, right? They, there is kind of an, this analysis paralysis in terms of like, we could do anything, right? And it's like, well, sure. But at the same time, you know, what is it that you, what's the change that you want to see? And I think that approach is quite helpful. And so um, in this case, just thinking about this idea that like the, the, the change that was envisioned is making this like a world-class, you know, you know, you know, human forward, like business attractive place for, for people. And that can be, you know, attractive globally. And so it's interesting to see that like, it's, comes down to like, do people feel good and taken care of in the immigration office and in the work office? And so that, that, I think that was, that's quite helpful too. Like we can, we can top at the, the top of the scale and abstraction of a vision all the way down to what it looks like in an office. Exactly. And that was one of the, my realizations that part of the problem and why we aren't able to build these products so systematically is because our vision starts off being really fluffy. And because, you know, what we've learned until now about what is a good vision is, has always been, oh, it has to be this big goal that you have. Um, and, and this idea that your vision never changes. And that fundamentally is kind of the root of what I call, you know, many of these product diseases, uh, because we start off with this really fuzzy vision. um, And then it's hard to translate, well, what does that vision mean in terms of what I actually do? Uh, And so, you know, until now, our vision statements, and by the way, I've made this mistake myself, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, talk from a high horse, like my vision for the first startup that I had was to revolutionize wireless. This was back in 2000, right? And we had no idea what that means. Uh, but for us, right, this whole idea of revolutionizing wireless right. meant we had to be big. We had to uh, go big or go home. It was all about scale to the point where we weren't even thinking about what exactly are we trying to solve in the first place. And that's kind of what happens to most startups when we start with such a big vision. Uh, by the way, that mm-hmm. disease is hero I, I love the product diseases breakdown was was well super fun because they're all well titled. But um, it's funny because I've seen I've you know we've seen we see these all the time too with organizations as well. The hero syndrome and trying to like do something that's so much bigger than yourself that it ends up being super abstract and fuzzy and can't actually solve anything because there's nothing. Being the number one producer of X Y Z is not a great vision, right? Um, but it's, but that seems to be such an a like a common vision framework that we see from organizations today. So it's interesting when you think about it in this regard, like why we it's almost like failure is built in. Like, you know, it's hard to see that, but it's saying we're gonna be the number one, you know, producer of this, the number one telecoms industry. And it's like, are we gonna be the billion dollar industry? And it's like that's a that's a terrible idea for a vision. Um, the example that you said later in the book, which I really liked, was was thinking about this in, in the case of doctors. And like, how would you like it if a doctor was like, you know, you go to their website and their mission statement is like to, to you know, to give medicine and to be a billion dollar practice. And you're like, that doesn't sound <laughs> like a great, <laughs> a great thing. <laughs> yeah. And so a good vision, uh, the, the test for that is if you take yourself out of the picture altogether, does it describe a problem that you want to see solved so that, you know, even if someone else were to solve it, that would it would make you maybe a little jealous, but at least happy to see that problem solved. Uh, and so the level of definition that any company needs in terms of what is a good vision to, to be able to articulate that problem statement and the solution is to answer the who, what, why, when, and how questions. Um, so the first question is, you know, whose world are we trying to change? And it doesn't have to be everyone. Like, although our idea of a good vision is, you know, it has to be big and broad. The reality is you have to find, you know, very specific group of people whose world you're trying to change. Then you ask the question, you know, what is the problem? And uh, like, what is the world that they're experiencing? Then you can say, well, why does that world need changing? Meaning, why is the status quo completely unacceptable? And if we cannot answer this one question uh, in a way that truly is convincing, then we have no business building that product. Then we can say, what's the world that we envision? So when when would you be able to say mission accomplished, basically? And then finally, we can say, how will we bring this about? And this is finally when we can talk about the product. And so, you know, if, if we look at kind of what happens when we try to answer these who, what, why, when, how questions, typically we sit in this offsite for hours at a time playing vision bingo and everyone kind of gets stuck in the words, right? And this is why we created the fill in the blank statement. 
in the radical product thinking way so that instead of focusing on just the words and, uh, and, and playing vision bingo, you can actually answer this as a fill in the blank statement, which does two things. First is it really gets everyone in the room uh, start to fill it out and then uh, think about like, what do I envision of the world so that you start to internalize it yourself. And the second is it creates that sort of alignment um, and, and focus on answering those deep and profound questions instead of just focusing on, you know, the wordsmithing. It makes me think about uh, outcomes-based medicine that was, uh, well, what kind of car do I drive? I mean, it gives a different sense of a doctor's like, you know, what, what, how do we evaluate whether we had good outcomes as, as a physician? Well, I have a Jaguar. Hmm. That's a pretty good outcome. Or, you know, my bank account's a pretty good outcome. And I've become strangely, as, you know, for a qualitative <laughs> researcher, I've become strangely fascinated with metrics in organizations because it really does reflect what it is that is truly prioritized in a company beyond their rhetoric. There was this one company I was working with once and they said, we're very customer centric. Uh, we're so customer centric. We want to make sure we limit our call center phone calls to like two minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> I said, so what, okay, well, explain to me like I'm dumb, um, which, you know, is a fair, fair assumption. Why, why does two minutes and 30 seconds have anything to do with customer experience? Well, it really doesn't. You know, they're like, well, we want to make sure they're not on hold. Well, then hire more people. <laughs> well, you know, well, we don't want to do that because it costs money. <laughs> so you're telling me that you really have this metric to avoid having people on hold because you don't want to spend more money, not because it's really related to customer experience. And then the behavior it drove was that cost, you know, call center workers made sure their calls were under two minutes and 30 seconds because if they were longer, they'd be penalized. You know, and it really does dig into, are you measuring what truly matters? And are you doing so from an inclusive and participatory framework that allows for multiple voices to not only provide what they find to be important, which, you know, you talk about OKRs and do a critical, you know, examination of which I appreciate it, but also that, that it actually becomes, you know, operationalized <laughs> in a meaningful way and you allow flexibility to... I'm not giving my book report that I read your book. You're given <laughs> flexibility <laughs> that you can change it if it's not working, if it's not, you're not measuring the right thing. Exactly. You know, the thing is, because until now, we haven't had this um, framework for really building products systematically, what ends up happening is when we pick metrics and what should we measure uh, to see if our product is successful, we end up just measuring things arbitrarily. We just try to look at maybe what other people are measuring and say, oh yeah, you know, how are we doing on those metrics? Whereas, you know, once you have this framework, what you realize is what you measure needs right. to be derived from your vision, from your strategy, because all these other popular metrics, they might be right for someone else's business, but they come with assumptions around what that business model means and what, what is and it might right, not be right for, for those you businesses. might look very I mean, One of the things that I've, I've noticed is that there tends to be a lot of herd mentality in business, right? Why are you using this metric? Because that's the industry standard. Okay, let me ask again, why are you using this metric? I mean, is it the right metric to use? I mean, you're explaining why you are following others, but why, you know, why does it matter? Does it align with your vision, with your purpose, with your goal to change something to make life better in some way? Or are you just doing it because you have to? And there might be, you know, and I don't know if you, you know, Doug delved into this nuance, you know, analyst expectations and the need for certain metrics, like I'm in education, our creditors, our crediting agencies want to see certain metrics. But mm. those metrics may have nothing to do with what happens in the classroom. Often they don't, right? Right. Often they don't. But right. we need to provide them. Okay, fine. But then you provide for space for these other things to exist that really do resonate with the, the vision and the purpose of the people who are working in the organization. You know, and, and I have this fascinating example that I've realized where even some of the most obvious metrics, it turns out, are not always the right ones. Let's look at the example of net promoter scores. So very often, right, we think that if you are delighting customers, well, measuring delight of customers is always a good thing. How can it be a bad thing, right? And so here's an example. Um, so there was a startup um, and the founder came to me and he was telling me about 
about all the numbers that he had and how they were looking good, but he wasn't happy with how things were going. So he built a company uh, inspired by the suspended coffee movement. Uh, and for listeners, you know, the suspended coffee movement is basically something that started in Italy about 100 years ago, where you pay for two coffees. One is what you consume, and the second is paid forward for someone who could use a random act of kindness. And so he built this app to be able to spread what he <laughs> called random acts of coffee. Um, and so, you know, the metrics that he had, they were looking super. So he had a high number of daily active users. Um, his net promoter scores were looking great. He even had organic growth, which is the nirvana for every entrepreneur, right? But here's the one metric that was showing things were not working. It was the fact that nobody was using their own money to actually spread kindness. So meaning everyone was using the app to go get a free coffee. No one was actually yep. using their money to spread kindness and buy someone a coffee. So, so this is what I mean. Like, it's not about delighting customers per se. You know, even this metric of delighting customers, it's meaningless if you're not measuring what truly matters. Um, and, and it can sometimes just you know, lead one, us astray. One of the examples, too, that, that um, is both globally famous at this point and also you talk about in your book, which I think is helpful, is when, when we are, are thinking about this idea and like what it is that we're actually measuring or not measuring, you know, the, the Facebook like button as this, this, you know, iterative led kind of design element that like didn't pass, you know, the, the Zuck test for a little while. Like he didn't want to do it because um, ultimately he was saying that it would actually cannibalize using other thing, other buttons like share, but recognizing that there was actually zero measurement in either side in terms of what is the actual outcome of, of this implementing this, this, this feature, or we might call it a bug at this point. Right. But, you know, implementing this in, into the interface. And so what does that even do? So I thought that too was also a really great example in terms of um, when we we are not articulating what we could do, so I, I love that the, the suspending coffee is a great example too, where it looks good on on one level of, of the balance sheet, but then realizing actually that it's it's doing one thing, but not actually doing the actual mission to be random acts of kindness or random acts of coffee, I guess, and paying it forward. And so this other flip side with with Facebook in terms of that there is these unintended consequences of um, you know wanting to put together this this new like button but then ultimately as we see it like there's there's massive like mental illness you know elements that have been built in in terms of obsessions with kind of getting getting likes on, on social media across all platforms now at this point uh that there's there's very little recognition in terms of like what is the goal of producing this feature and like what has been the actual outcome and so um and it sounds it's it almost sounds counterintuitive in terms of thinking about how would do we at this point expect Facebook to then say, "Well, what is the outcome of the like button?" Right, um, and so I think I think one interesting question with this too is that how do we help organizations, I guess, build some level of responsibility for how they're measuring and what they're measuring? Right. So how do we how do we kind of help them think using the, the radical product thinking framework and and you know if we're practitioners or consultants going into businesses, helping them you know I guess get a more realistic sense of responsibility. You know whether it like links into digital pollution. Um, or, or just like taking and being realistic about what it is that we're trying to measure um, and just saying you're measuring, you know, yeah, your app is up, your usage is up, but what is the, what's the ramifications of that? You know, what, what does the up usage actually mean? How does it echo in society? So how do we, how do we help organizations think about that in the, the collateral that can come from these unintended consequences? One of the first things I think we need to realize as individuals is the whole, uh, the, the legal entity of an organization, an LLC, was created specifically with the goal of avoiding responsibility, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's intended for shielding responsibility from a group of people, right? And so what we have to realize is, yes, organizations should be responsible, but really it comes down to each and every one of us. And, you know, even since writing the book, what really hit me is... Uh, the words of Greta Thunberg, when she said, how dare you, when it came to environmental pollution, she was saying this to, you know, all right. the political leaders for not doing enough. When we talk about building products, right, every one of us is building a product and every one of us is contributing to digital pollution. So, yes, ones like Facebook and Google are the big polluters. Let's say the equivalent of the oil companies that create lots of pollution and environmental pollution. 
Um, but every one of us in our products, we do contribute to digital pollution because, you know, we store metadata. Uh, we may be creating inequality through algorithms or our business models, etc. And so every single one of us needs to think about how much am I contributing to digital pollution? How is my product contributing to digital pollution? And once we start to realize that our own role is, you know, that of a doctor, when you're building a product, you know, just like a doctor says to a patient, they say, I see you have a problem. I'm going to prescribe this medicine for you. When we build a product, we're doing something very similar as an individual. We're saying, you know, I see you consumer or business have a problem and I'm prescribing my product to you. And so we have that same level of responsibility that a doctor does because we affect people's lives and society. And so we need to be able to embrace that responsibility. And and so it's that realization that responsibility isn't just with an organization. It lies with every one of us as individuals. And so the, the main principle that we have to think about is, you know, we're voting with our labor. We've come to a point in society where the idea has been, you know, consumers can vote with their dollar um, and, you know, the free market will solve it all. Well, if a company is being bad, we'll just stop spending money on it we've increasingly come to realize that that is not practical. It's very hard for consumers to do that. And so the power now lies in employees. There are so many brilliant minds, you know, the people who are listening to this podcast, you absorb nuance. It's for you to decide if you're going to vote with your labor and do something differently because you see the responsibility that comes with the products you build. I think this is one of the, the elements that... You know, whenever we, we see kind of broader social discussions too, we, we I think this is, I don't know, it, it, it's like a, I'm, gonna, I'm like hedging what I'm gonna, about to say. Because it's, it's interesting that like, we often hear that, oh, like the next generation is going to help us do this. And Greta Thunberg is a great example of Gen Z and that, that Gen Zs are kind of the most globally minded and, and you know, the most like socially justice, social justice oriented, um, looking for more um, equitable options in, in being more vocal about uh, elements like stakeholder capitalism you know, versus shareholder capitalism. And so it's interesting too that in terms of um, also kind of thinking about where we are thinking the action will lie. And so I think there's a really interesting point that you're making there. And, and one of these challenges that we we do have to, I think, wrestle with is that it is up to us as individuals to be able to, to use our capacity to vote with our labor, for our, with our dollars if we could on some levels. And then also, but grapple with the idea that there are information asymmetries and power inequities, right, that are exacerbated by um, systems that are way bigger than us, you know, and and that can be as simple as the fact that you know one of the the digital pollution uh, elements you mentioned is is sort of like the the kind of eroding trust in information, and that Google, for example, if we all we all use it to find information or Wikipedia, whatever comes up on the first page, most people look at and then say that that's it, you know, um, and and that I think it was an example of the cab driver that you mentioned that. that like I used to read the newspaper and I could get I could get the facts, you know. But now it's I don't know what to trust anymore. You know, it's like I, I don't know where the information is supposed to be. And so there is this really interesting challenge too, in terms of also like ways we can help individuals, um, like both recognize that responsibility, but at the same time it, it's onto us. But it's like also us together. I think you know, and, and like what that can be. And so things like shareholder capitalism are helping. Or sorry, stay, <laughs> correction. Things like stakeholder capitalism are helping us kind of rethink this idea of how we can we can kind of work together. Versus saying it's just kind of the resources going for a certain few. So I don't know. It is an interesting challenge. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the way we can start to embrace that, right, is each of us, when we're building products, start with a vision for what is the change that you want to see? What is the change that your product is going to bring about? Then think about, you know, how are you going to bring about that change? You know, if I go back to that example of that startup that I was talking about where they were trying to uh, spread kindness through coffee, right? Once we envision that as a product to be able to bring about that change of spreading kindness through coffee, we started to engineer our features to be able to deliver that change. So I'll give you an example. We looked at the strategy and we said, you know, so of course, with this RDCL framework, we said, okay, so what's the pain point? Why wouldn't someone do this? Like, why do they come to this product, but then not, not spend their money on spreading kindness? And so we realized it's because, well, you know, the pain point is it's something I've never done before. I've never bought someone a coffee from an app. So I'm hesitant to do this when I haven't, when I'm not used to it. 
So our solution was getting people to get used to giving someone this random act of coffee. In terms of capabilities, this meant that we had to be able to fund free coffees in the app. Um, and so we got brands to sponsor uh, this following feature. The feature was each person gets two coffees, one that you consume, mm. the second you must gift. And so you got two free coffees, right? But the second you had to gift. And so that was the capability that was spurred by brand sponsoring it. And then finally, in terms of our business model, this meant that, you know, we were making money based on brands, uh, taking a percentage of the brand sponsorship fee. So how did this completely change what the, the app was doing? Well, you know, in terms of how we were measuring success, initially, nobody was spreading kindness, right? Everyone was just there to consume coffee. Well, we started measuring after this feature of uh, get, giving people these two free coffees, then 27% of people who were getting this free coffee that they had to learn to gift, they were now starting to use their own money to uh, buy someone a coffee. So, my point is, you know, if we start with a clear vision and then systematically engineer change, we can build features that align with that vision, have a cohesive strategy in terms of how will we bring about that change. Um, and that's what I really hope people take away, that we can systematically engineer change. And no matter what kind of a product it is, software, hardware, you know, just even activism, you can apply these ideas to engineer change. And also a healthy understanding of culture. Uh, we're going to do the gifting coffee in America. I'd say it's better, better make sure we design in the fact that they're just going to take coffees and not give them to anybody else. I said that. It's okay. You didn't say that. I said that. And I can say that because I'm from here. It is, it is interesting that in Italy for like a hundred years, they had no problem with people gifting coffee. And then when it comes to the United States, it's like, I don't know. I'm just going to find the free ones. Maybe you can put a map where I can find the free ones and, and integrate it with Google Maps so I can find the, the closest route through someone's neighborhood. So I can get the free coffee before someone else gets it from me. <laughs> what is funny was, right, when, when originally um, uh, this founder was pursuing a lot of those metrics of engagement, etc. That was exactly the feature that he see? had. A map where talking. you could see where you could get the free coffees. Yeah. <laughs> But but I think herein lies the problem of kind of right. building features for engagement, uh, which then drives the wrong behavior, as opposed to building features to create the change TikTok, that you want to bring on TikTok about. Of people fighting over coffees of who got there first. <laughs> it's a it's a different kind of metric in the United States. I think in Canada it might have worked okay. I don't know if this was you wouldn't need that feature of, of getting a free coffee and having to gift one. But in the United States, you, yeah, you kind of did. But it does go to you know this flexibility of approach, right? Yep. And that, you know, the understanding of context and culture and how we think about a product might work in one context, in one situation, one culture. And another one, you need to have this, uh, this nuanced understanding of what behaviors, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't try to do it, but it does mean you might have to rethink the approach and add in different kind of structural features or elements or metrics or whatever in order to make it successful. And that brings up the point that, uh, that Adam, you brought up early on. You said, you know, uh, that this makes us look at product in a different way in that we have to consider things like diversity, stereotypes, et cetera, right? If we want to build products that work across people as an all kinds of people, um, we really need that sort of representation on our teams. You know, there's this myth created by IDEO that, uh, anyone can empathize and build products for anyone. And really it's a myth because even when you do a lot of user research, you're always looking at user research from the lens of your own experience. And so if you don't have a diverse set of people who are looking at this user research, you're never going to be able to empathize enough to build products that solve the user's problems. It's hard to build products that work for all when we do that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great example, and I think and I think fundamentally important too as we're as we're contemplating, you know, again a radical approach to product in in that, you know, who is helping build this and who is it for, and and do we actually understand like the real pain points of who it is that we're trying to design for, and having a specific idea of who it is that we are designing for, right? And then also reflecting on ourselves, who is doing the designing, who's putting the logistics together, and so I think that that's a a great point too to think with, um, and and gives me hope, right, that that we can. I mean, both be more realistic, but you know, I guess 
dare I say, be more social scientific in our thinking in terms of like how do we how do we provide more space for that kind of nuance and difference. Um, and, and like one of the elements here that I really appreciated in your book too was thinking through the culture in an organization too. And like in, we have to recognize that employees of color are going to face um, different structural barriers and issues in terms of how they experience the workforce, even if we have the same kind of setup. Um, primarily, if again, if it's if it's a majority of like a you know one race or one ethnic group of of employees, and so thinking about this too in terms of leadership is different from employees, and just recognizing that these differences will shape what an organizational culture feels like. Um, it'll it reflect to your point, like the kinds of issues or features or or product points that we're thinking about when we're designing and developing them, and so right having from the baseline thinking about you know um, kind of diverse and inclusive ways of approaching products. Um, requires us again fundamentally across the across the entire spectrum. I think so. I think that, that is also just a fundamental, important point, especially as we're thinking about the way that like this product perspective can be something as doing a, a kind of you know coffee, random act of coffee thing, and it can be that it can be something that I do for my personal self and kind of help my neighborhood. It can be something as big as a, a global scale product or project. You know, so it's interesting too in this regard too that it has the flexibility to think across these. And so one thing I found helpful kind of in, in a broad spectrum from the, from the book too is that oftentimes a lot of social scientists, if they're, if they're moving into industry work or kind of product work, you know, we often go through user experience or UX, right? And so to your point, that's, that's kind of somewhere that a lot of people start, whether it's from the visual or the research side oftentimes, might, might get to the design side. But getting to product is actually kind of a next layer that, that some, some do and some don't. And so even just thinking about the, the kind of pipeline, if I don't want to make it a straight line, but thinking about the pipeline in terms of how social scientists um, think about the kinds of ways they can, they can provide more impact in the world, taking a product perspective and a product like you know radical product thinking is, uh, I think, quite refreshing because it shows a bit about where design is fundamental and part of the equation, but it's part of the equation, right? Like there is, mm-hmm. there's the vision all the way through the execution and logistics. And so that's something that I found very helpful too that I want to call out for listeners is um, UX is there, you know, but don't stop there. Um, it's part of the equation and to like kind of actually take a radical product thinking approach, you know, we're, we're getting much, we're getting much bigger, but at the same time, it's still, again, as we've been talking quite grounded in terms of what it is that we can actually do and how can we be intentional about being diverse and being open to listening and changing when we need to, but also being, you know, driven by a vision versus just having a pivotitis where we change every time something <laughs> gets hard. Yeah, what you said about UX, you know, very often when we just focus on UX and design, it's it goes back to this idea of just delighting customers with a nice looking interface or, uh, you know, a pleasant user experience. But really, like, unless we're designing this with a purpose, like, what is the change that you're trying to bring about? Often, even design just becomes the superfluous thing that we're doing. It just becomes an act for prettying up an interface. Um, it becomes much more purposeful and actually useful and contributes towards the end goal when you start with a clear picture of what is it that you're, what is the change you're trying to bring about? Yeah, agreed. And so I think, I think that to me, I think is, is one of the most refreshing and like, and also the great part is it's fundamental, right? You start with the vision, you stick with the vision, you build with the vision um, and it gives you, it kind of, you know, sets the course um, as it needs to be. And so the other key thing, just, uh, just a, a quick point there too, of course, is, is and I think what's great is that this doesn't mean we don't iterate, right? We have a vision and it helps us align where we're going, but we're not we're not getting rid of like agile thinking, right? That's still a fundamental part of like how can we incrementally change and build. But at the same time, the vision kind of keeps us and gives us that vector or that trajectory um, that keeps us kind of where is our iteration going versus that we're just kind of taking a what did you say taking a road trip to Boston or Toronto? We don't really know. We're in Boston, so this is kind of fun. Of like, hey, shout out! <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't. There's, there's no, direct, there's no direct pipelines in Boston on the roads. Yeah. <laughs> it's all very circuitous and roundabout in one way, and yeah, you can't get there from here. Absolutely. Well, I, one, one of the things I think is really important to kind of think about as well is that there are companies that are doing this, right? You know, when I was having a conversation the other day and someone was saying something about capitalism, quote unquote, and businesses, quote unquote. And I was like, well, which ones? Are you talking about like, you know, B Corps that are employee owned? Are you you talking about, you know, companies that are just on a shareholder model? Are you talking about companies like Patagonia that are trying to have a, you know, be, you know, conscious about what it is they're doing aligned with their vision of sustainability? You know, it's again, the nuance, right? That 
there are companies who can be more successful in using this kind of approach, but they have to break out of the long-held kind of cult, you know, assumptions around what is the purpose of business, which is maximize shareholder value versus to have a positive impact on the world. But, you know, I do feel like we don't have to always be altruistic either. It's not that... Uh, so I, I do agree that we should be... Um, sensitive to what's the change we're creating in the world, what's the collateral damage. But I feel like it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we all have to be B Corps. I think it's in how do we define success? Right. I think, you know, one of the key things that I realized in my research is that we've just gotten very short-term driven because of how stock markets exactly. work. Hmm. And it's not necessarily good for business either. Like, you know, a lot of that... Uh, uh, I give the example of GE, you know, GE bought up so many companies and was so bloated. And that was what in the end drove their failure. It was because they were starting to be very, very short term driven to be able to show those results every quarter. Uh, and which is why GE ended up buying a company that was really steeped in subprime, mor uh, subprime mortgage crisis. Right. Um, so I think it's not necessarily that we all have to be B Corps. It's really having the right balance between the long term and the short term. And I think, you know, reconfiguring altruism, not as this impossible end state of having no self-interest, right? But it's, mm -hmm. as you were talking about, configuring the place of others in your thinking, <laughs> Yeah. Right. This, this, you know, don't have to be completely altruistic. Let's just try not to be totally narcissistic. <laughs> Can we just push towards the altruism a little bit and get away from the narcissism? <laughs> that, that might be helpful. So don't worry about being Patagonia, but be a little bit like less like GE. <laughs> there we go. Exactly. That's 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 a goal that's very achievable. Right? Can we put down a bumper sticker. <laughs> Like the entire bumper. <laughs> right. The new merch from the Anthro podcast. <laughs> right. Totally. Uh, I like it. I love it. Um, so this this has been fantastic talking with you, Radhika. Thank you so much for, for hopping on and, and chatting with us. I know you already said this a little bit, but I just want to I want to kind of jump in and say, is there any like uh you know, a bit about kind of what's what's one of like the the one or two takeaways you want folks to get from having checking out your book and thinking about these these processes? Um, what are you hoping that folks come away with with uh, from the from this conversation and from your book? So the main thing is, you know, when we take this iteration-led approach, which is, by the way, so predominant in industry, um, that attitude of let's just try things in the market and see what works, it really is the equivalent of licking trees and hoping for maple syrup. <laughs> so, so instead of taking this iteration-led approach, we can... Uh, really systematically build world-changing products uh, in a very repeatable way. And so that means starting with a very clear vision for what's the change we want to bring about, having a strategy that translates that into a set of actionable steps. Then your priorities is how you feature that vision in your everyday decisions. And finally, you measure what matters by using your vision and strategy as hypotheses. And that is the main takeaway that, you know, we can systematically engineer change no matter where we want to create change, all the way from building businesses to activism or even in our personal lives. Amazing. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been super fun. Um, as Gary, you can probably tell we both, we both really enjoyed your book. Um, and it was, it, was, it was refreshing and fun to think through great examples um, and great, again, ways of grounding. Like the, we are talking about a lot of big things and again, radically rethinking what a product can be. So um, thank you for for kind of the the making it an accessible approach to to rethinking this process and um, showing that I think one of the other key pieces there right that this is repeatable right we can do this on all scales and in, in, in businesses for ourselves and even you know even to the nation state if you want to so um, I think that that's that's a that's one of the takeaways that I'm taking away from this too is that the, this is something that feels achievable which is important right it's it's if we're going to be radical it's 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 helpful if it's achievable <laughs> you know so. Kudos for that. I think that that's a big plus in, in my book. So thank you so much uh, for joining with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and I've truly enjoyed the part we have. We want to thank Radhika Dutt, author of Radical Product Thinking, for joining us on the podcast. Make sure you pick up a copy and explore how to become more radical in your product thinking as well as personal thinking in this brand new Spankin' 2022 year. You can find, <laughs> woohoo, right? You can find Radhika's book and information in our show notes. 
So let us know, you know, sound off. In what ways do you want to make a difference and change in the new year? Have you found yourself making, I don't know, iterative changes in years past and wonder why things don't stick? This got me thinking about my own newest resolutions in new ways. So what would it mean to kind of have a more radical product thinking about ourselves or our organizations as we want to make changes in 2022? Also, how many languages do you speak? One. Shoot us a message. <laughs> One, right? <laughs> Shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or visit us on the LinkedIn page to get in conversation. One and not necessarily that well. And if Still you love it. 2021, I'm sure you're going to love 2022. And so to help us bring you more wonderful episodes in 2022, make sure to give us your continued support over at our website, which is experiencexdesign.com. You can buy us a coffee. You can share your ideas. You can subscribe or in any other ways, give us moral support because we always love hearing from you. And if you wanted to sponsor an episode of EXD, get your name right up front and center with all the wonderful conversations that we do, please send us a message. We'd love to have your sponsorship. Make sure you reach out to us. If you have any other feedback about the show, the episodes or ideas, shoot us a message at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. We love hearing from you and make sure you head over to our website to stay on top of all the EXD news. And with that, we thank you for another wonderful year of Experience by Design. We hope you have a great holiday. We wish you a happy and prosperous and healthy new year. And we will see you next time on Experience by Design. Happy New Year.